right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Our interview here with Peter Jacobson is going to roll shortly. First, I got to apologize, though, for the audio quality you're going to hear in this. It's a long story. I'm not going to bore you with it. First half of this interview, uh, it's going to sound like Peter's coming from across the room. It's because he is. I had a comedy of errors that happened, and we are lucky to have captured it. And uh, our editor has done a great job with getting the audio to this level of quality. So I do apologize for that. Bear with us. It's not that bad. You'll get used to it a couple minutes into it. And then about halfway through the episode, uh, the quality is going to snap back to uh, pretty pretty darn solid or perfectly solid, as, as solid as you would expect. We're not perfect, but uh, you'll, you'll hear that it's actually coming through the microphone. Had, had the software crash on me in the middle of the interview. Thankfully, I had a backup going, which... Almost never happens. I'm, it's still a miracle that we got this interview. So very thankful for that. Also very thankful for our friends at Travis Matthew. If you haven't heard of Quater yet, that's C-U-A-T-E-R. It's the new uh, premium performance shoe brand focused on versatile, comfortable footwear and accessories. They launched two premium performance golf shoes, the Legend and the Moneymaker. The Legend is the is Quater's take on the traditional tour-style golf shoe, the Moneymaker is a more casual and athletic spikeless golf shoe. We've gotten a look at these, played a few rounds in them, and we got an exclusive quote uh, from our own Tron Carter, who had this to say, I wore the legend today during my second place finish in the FSGA one-day event, and the excep- exceptional traction kept me tethered to the ground for every shot of my two quadruple bogeys off mulch, grass, sand, coquina shell, and bare dirt. In all seriousness, the legends are completely waterproof. He, I wore them on a very C-suite trip to California where it rained a bunch and my feet stayed nice and dry, blown away by the traction and comfort. And it's it's a shoe that you can uh, throw on on the first day and not even have to break in. Combo of clean looks and impressive durability. It's been a winner. So for more on this, visit Quater.com, C-U-A-T-E-R.com. 15% off your first Quater purchase uh, when you go to Quater.com. Without any further delay, here's our interview with Peter Jacobson. You were talking about how you can't believe, you don't feel like one of the older guys. I don't feel like one of the older guys. I started at age 22 back in 77, and 44 years, it, it's, it's ridiculous how it's flown by. I've been so lucky to have played with all the great players in the game. I've been around them, been in the, I've got, gotten to know them all as good friends, and I look on their accomplishments with with great admiration and amazement, but the getting to know them as well as I have is the fun part. But still, I don't feel like an old guy. Well, it, it's I, I, one of the questions I have for you, and this will we'll start right off the bat, but you got the benefit of hindsight now for your whole career. What's something you wish you knew? What's something you would, you would have done differently, something maybe you figured out late in life, but if you had a chance to change something golf-wise about your career, what would you change? Uh, I would have worked harder on my short game coming out of uh, Portland, Oregon. Grew up in Portland and played at University of Oregon. But I only worried about ball striking. I worried about hitting the ball in the fairway and hitting in the greens, and I didn't work on my short game enough. And only in the later part of my career did I really focus on my short game, pitching, chipping, bunker play, putting. I think I would have, I think I would have had a, probably a few more wins and a better career had I 
worked on my short game. In fact, whenever I do a clinic with amateurs and juniors, I'm always stressing that. Go work on your short game because it's going to save you. Some of the greatest players in the history of the game, Tiger, Phil, Seve Ballesteros, Ben Crenshaw, they all saved rounds of golf and saved tournaments on and around the greens. Hmm. Was there anyone that you looked around and saw the way they did things either with technique or with practice that made you say like, oh, wow, I need to get better at this. Was there anyone, I, I love asking pros what they see in other people's games that makes them want to get better or makes them realize they need to change something. Well, Seve was a good friend of mine. We played a lot of golf together, a lot of practice rounds of majors together. And he would work with me on certain shots and I would try to steal everything that he did because he was, he was magic. As magic as Mickelson is and Tiger is around the greens, that was Seve. Just the hands? Is that what what was it? I don't know. It was I don't know if it was his technique so much as his will to get it up and down, but he would he would hit shots that nobody would imagine. He'd be left of the green and he'd have two bunkers facing him. And I would take a big high flop, put it on the green and try to make a twenty footer. He would pick the little strip of grass running between the two bunkers at about a forty five degree incline. He'd take an eight iron bounce it into that incline, and it would go up there about two feet. That's a shot I never would look at, but he would do on, uh, on rut routinely. So he was, he was the guy that really made me think more about getting it up and down, getting it done, playing golf rather than golf swing. Interesting. We, and <laughs> Lanny had an interesting take on this too, on the gamesmanship of Seve from the Ryder Cup perspective. and. He kind of erred on the side of, it wasn't really gamesmanship. It was borderline inappropriate, if not inappropriate, how he conducted himself in some ways from a competitive standpoint, coughing and backswings. What's that like during a practice round for a major? Are you guys playing money games or what was your experience like with Seve in that regard? We would always play games where we would hit crazy shots. In fact, we did it probably four, five, six times. Did it with Greg Norman too, where it would be call a shot. Normally you go to US Open and you watch four guys tee off and they hit driver and then they hit their eight iron and then they putt and chip. Seve would have a game where we would call a shot. We might get on a, the tee of a par four, but he would say, okay, it's gonna be a four iron around that tree back to the fairway. So we would get up and we would hit a four iron around a tree into the fairway. It was, it was less about playing the golf course and learning the course and more about creating shots because I came to learn later in my career playing a lot with Seve. Seve never did hit it in the fairway. He never did hit <laughs> That's it. That's why I was gonna say. He was always in trouble. Well, I hope you guys got to call the shots every now and <laughs> then did. too. Okay. We, we, we would rotate. Okay. I distinctly remember when Fluff was caddying for me for 20 years. Seve's brother, I believe it was Vicente was, was his brother who was caddying for him. We were playing in the PGA at Cherry Hills in Denver. We got to the eight hole of par three, and it was one of our call shot games. And it was Seve's turn, and Seve said, okay, it's you and Fluff against Vicente and me playing this par three on our knees. <laughs> so we dropped down to our knees. Now, you got to understand this, a practice round for a major championship. I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think maybe either Hubert Green or Trevino won that tournament. I can't remember, but we dropped to our knees, and we had to hit our shots from our knees, and Fluff and I beat them. <laughs> so here are these Ballesteros brothers who are great shot makers, and Fluff and I took them down on that hole at that. What course? Shot. What course is this at? Cherry Hills. Cherry, in oh, Cherry Hills. You said that. Sorry. What? 
What, what's fluff like? I mean, I, I, we see the pictures, and I think everyone has an image of fluff. I don't know if I've ever heard his voice. I know he's a, a deadhead, I believe, is about all I know about, about fluff. He's the biggest deadhead you'll ever meet. When I first met fluff, well, first of all, when, Ty, when Tiger hired Fluff to go to work from me to Tiger, everybody thought, oh, Peter, you gotta hate Fluff. You gotta hate that he left you. Not at all, I encouraged it. Because how many chances do you have to go to work for or work for the greatest in that chosen profession? And it was that obvious to you it before he, okay. Tiger was gonna be great. I knew Tiger when he was a kid. I was there when he won the US Amateur in Portland, Oregon, where I used to live. It was clear he was gonna be a great player. But Mike Cowan is the easiest going guy that you'll ever meet. I talk to him, oh, maybe once or twice every two weeks. I see, I don't see him as much anymore because I'm not doing as much TV for NBC. I used to see him all the time and Furyk turning 50. So we don't know where Furyk's gonna play this year, whether it's tour or champions tour, but Fluff is the easiest going guy. He is a loyal, true friend. One of my best friends in life, not just in golf, but but in life. Could you have pictured him caddying? How old is he now? Is he is he approaching his eighties, uh, isn't he? No, 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 no. He just looks. I was gonna say as soon as I said that, I'm like, he probably just looks older no, than no, he no, is. Oh my God, he's he's got some hard years on him, and he knows it too. We always laugh about it. I think he's seventy two. His birthday okay. is, I believe, February seven. He's gonna be seventy two, or maybe maybe seventy three. I'm not sure, but. He's still going strong, carries that bag, hustles behind Jim, and it's, it's great to see. So in the uh, first part of this audio that we are redoing currently, you mentioned that you are also, you're not only recognized as a player and as a commentator, but for two other things that you've also experienced in your, in your life and career. What are the things that people come up to you and say? Well, ever since Golden Tee came out, and I was involved in the inception of the game and did voiceovers, still do voiceovers, now with Jim Nance, people come up and say, hey, we see that guy's name on the leaderboard. He might be two, three, four, five under, but that's the golden tea guy. I, I sign more autographs as the golden tea guy than as a player. And, and it's fun. And the other one, too, is I get a lot, is I was in the movie Tin Cup. I won the U.S. Open in Tin Cup, the, one, the tournament that Roy McAvoy was chasing. And people will say, oh, you're the Tin Cup guy. You, you were in Tin Cup. And how did that come about? How did you get in that? And how long were you on set there, for that? There were a lot of players, uh, tour players in Tin Cup. John Cook, Greg Stadler, Fred Couples, Corey Pavin, Jerry Pate, Bruce Litsky, Tommy Armour, a bunch of us. Ron Shelton, the director, he, he wanted it to be very authentic, PGA Tour authentic. So when we were on set with Kevin Costner and Don Johnson, who were great to us, by the way, we just interacted. We walked around on the putting green like we were getting ready to play a tournament round. We'd be in the locker room talking, and he'd walk by. And there was no script by Coster or Don Johnson that we knew of. It was just, guys, go do your thing. Kind of like if you and I were doing a podcast and Coster were to walk through, and that would be a part of the movie. Hmm. Just do your thing. So, uh, and I think I think when they were asking if somebody could be here on this specific day because that's the day they were gonna shoot the final. I put my hand up, I said, I can be here. And Shelton said, good, you're gonna win the US Open. I was Open. gonna say, what's, was there an actual competition to see who got to win the US Open yeah, in that yeah, movie? No, no, you just won. Because I played the final round with Jerry Pate, who actually 
did win the U.S. <laughs> Open. So he was like, dude, how did, I, how did I not get it? I did it. He said, hey, I don't know, but put my hand up first. I'm just, uh, this, I don't know if this is a good question for you, but I wonder how they got away with using the U.S. Open. Because I know like Happy Gilmore had to make up some names of events and stuff, but I don't know if the USGA licensed that to him. I know there's weird stuff around some Maybe of that. Maybe that but, was way before yeah, it licensing could be. and anything like that. Maybe the USGA thought it was good advertising. Yeah. I don't know. What was the, what was the I guess, the the talk around tour. Was there a genuine excitement about that movie at the time? Very much so. Remember the great line Cheech said when uh, Costner shanked a a ball and he said, hey, you're shoving a chili pepper or Lee Jansen's, (laughs) you know what? It was a lot of excitement because there were so many players in the movie. Right, yeah, it was real. We were all anticipating how cool it was going to be for it when it came out, and it was. It was. Did they have like tour consultants kind of covering off on the golf aspect of it, making sure they got the details yeah, that right? Was, uh, that was Gary McCord. Okay. Gary McCord and Coster became pretty good buddies. McCord taught Coster how to play golf, how to swing, and I think he did it. Coster did a good job. Mm-hmm. McCord put his heart and soul into that, and it was just a fun movie. It was something right down McCord's alley. Who he likes to laugh and have a good time, and I thought the movie was great. Yeah, no, it's the extremely, extremely rewatchable, uh, and Golf Channel is not shy about putting it on in the in the well, evenings. That's good these for days. all of us yeah. that read it because every time it shows, royalties. Week, I get yeah, forty eight cents or something <laughs> like that for showing. Did you have to join this street uh, Screen Actors Guild? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, I'm a member of the Screen Actors. So you Guild. Get the, do you have to pay dues to that every year? Um, or how's that work? Yeah, or, no, no, I don't. I don't okay. pay them. I'm a member, but I don't pay them. <laughs> Well, you know, it kind of fits in, that movie fits in well with, you know, you've always been a personality on tour, and me, from a younger generation, I've always known you as a personality. Do you think, a couple questions related to that, do you feel like the current tour is kind of trending away from encouraging that kind of personality, and do you ever feel like your accomplishments on the course may be overshadowed by your personality? Put it this way, when I was younger, and I was influenced very much by Chi-Chi and Lee Trevino and Fuzzy Zeller, I, I tended to skew that way because they they were more like, or I should say I was more like them. But it really came out of necessity to be able to have a personality or to set yourself apart, to be able to be noticed, to be able to do pro-ams and get endorsements and be able to survive. There wasn't the money then as it is today. So I don't think it is of importance to the players today to be to be to worry about their Q factor mm-hmm. or to show much personality because let's, safer's let's face, better. Safer's better uh, and there's more media out there obviously, but it's also there's so much money out there. Players can win tournaments. Put it this way, when I played, you needed to be a tour member for about 10 years to say that you have a career or you can you've made a, uh, a living playing golf. Nowadays, all it needs is one year. You have a good year, you win the FedEx Cup, you can quit, you're mm-hmm. done. Yeah. So I think the needs back then were different than they are today. That's why you saw so many kind of wild things back then and you don't see it much anymore. Yeah. Well, when did you feel like you had that career, had carved out a career? Or, or you know, it's always weird asking people about finances, but I, the game, like you said, the game has changed so much in that in that regard that you know you go back and look at like guys like you and your career earnings and what you're making in the '80s and the co- travel costs are expensive. Like I always wonder what the threshold for like feeling like you're making money playing golf was back then because you can look now and there's guys that I know that are pretty comfortable playing on the Corn Ferry Tour, but it's I imagine that wasn't necessarily the case back then. I think I felt like I made it when I was out of debt. 
I was. <laughs> How long did that take? Uh, it took probably eight years. Wow. When I first played, my first three years, I was on a sponsorship by some friends of mine in Portland. And after that ran out, I went out on my own. I didn't have much money, but I had, I had trust and belief in myself. And I had a few small contracts, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar contracts. And I saved my money. And my wife, who's uh, my wife of 43 years, she was very good at, at managing money. But when I was out of debt and we, we bought a small condo in Portland, we started having kids and the pressure was on. I knew I had to, yeah. I knew I had to perform, but it really, gosh, I, I won my first tour event in 1980. I won a couple times in 84 and probably in the late 80s when I was a father of three and I, I felt more comfortable. But so what's that? that that's that's 12, one time. Uh, 10, 10 years until I felt like I quote unquote made it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> does that, how does that affect your golf? I mean, some people, you know, it can say, you know, having your feet held to the fire like that makes you play better, but it can also add a lot of pressure to you. So how did it affect you? It, it helped me. Yeah. It made me really focus and pay attention. I, as you said earlier, who did I really focus in on and who did I learn from? Everybody. Yeah. I was so lucky, lucky to get thrown in. When I first came out with Arnold Palmer, I signed with McCormick. I think they signed me on a whim. I was a nobody. But I got thrown in with Arnold and Jack and Gary Player and David Graham and Hale Irwin and Raymond Floyd, and I watched, and I listened, and I learned about how to be, how to be a golf professional. You can be a professional golfer and be a jerk, mm -hmm. win a lot of tournaments and be an idiot, but to be a professional golfer, that basically runs a whole gambit. It runs from getting to registration in the morning and being kind to people, and going out and playing great, being in a pro-am, being kind to your partners, giving a little of your time, and then winning a tournament and giving a good acceptance speech. So I, I was lucky. I learned from the best. It's a, golf's a smaller circle than I think a lot of people think. I mean, if you, you know, it's pretty easy to, you know, if you get a bad reputation with one agency or one thing you've done ever, if you showed up for a pro-am hungover and you didn't talk to people like that becomes a story that follows you around forever you know it is, it is a small world out there and yeah. put it to, put it this way if you if you have a bad experience with a pro in a pro-am or at a dinner or somebody mistreats you you're gonna you're gonna tell a thousand people you know yeah if you have a really good day you're not going to tell as many because that's what it's that's what's expected of you and basically parroting what arnold palmer would say it's it's imperative for you, Peter Jacobson, or any tour player, to give that amateur you're playing with that day the best experience mm -hmm. they've ever had on a golf course, you're not only representing yourself and your family and your name, but you're representing the PGA Tour. And if you're proud of that organization, as I am and I think we all are, then you're going to do your darndest to give that person the best day. And I was lucky I learned that at a young age. Yeah. Well, I love, I love asking people this. What was your what would you would consider your welcome to the PGA Tour moment? It could be anything. I, I, I tend to direct wow. that towards like I'm walking out in the range and there's boom, Jack Nicholas right there. Or he comes up on me in a practice round or something like that. What was your moment of like, whoa, I'm here? Well, I'll tell you exactly when it was. It was my first time I ever qualified for a tour event. It was at Pebble Beach, the Bing Crosby back then, now the AT&T. I qualified on Monday. I played with Bill Rogers, the Open champion former player of the year, 1980. Uh, I played with Bill Rogers in a Monday qualifier at Old Del Monte. 
in Carmel, California, and I shot 70, and I got into the Crosby. I was so excited. It was Monday afternoon. I ran out to Monterey Peninsula Country Club, one of the courses in the rotation, to play a few holes. Teed off on the backside, played three or four holes. Sun is setting in the Pacific, and I said, I better cut over and get in before it gets too dark. Well, I cut over to 16, hit some tee shots, walking off the tee, and who comes around the corner from 15? Arnold Palmer, <laughs> playing with Mark McCormick, who happened to be my manager at the time, but I'd never met him. <laughs> That's so, like, did, did he know you? Oh, he no, was your manager? No, no, he didn't know me. Why, why would he? So I'm standing there with my, with my hand down my pants. Don't know what to do. This is Arnold Palmer. Now, he, this taught me a lot right here. He could have big-timed me, ignored me, waved me off. He walked right up to me. Hitching his pants, snorting the yeah. way he did, stuck his hand out and said, Hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. Can we join you? <laughs> now, it was clear that I cut in front of him, but he wanted to make me be inclusive and include me. I played the last three holes with he and Mark. They talked to me like I was a, a peer. We got done. He shook my hand. He left. So did all the 400 <laughs> people in the crowd. It was just my caddy and I. That was my, hmm. you're on the tour now, because where else would you have been able to play three holes with Arnold Palmer unless you played in a pro-am or yeah. was in a corporate world? So my first day as a tour, as a tour player yeah. was my hello moment. I, I've either, I didn't know that when I asked it, but I've either heard you tell that story or I've heard somebody else tell a very similar story about Arnold. Like as soon as you're talking about Arnold walking up the other, because I guarantee you're not the only person that happened to. Well, you can argue that Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods are the greatest players in the game. And, and I wouldn't argue that. I, I say that all the time. But who's the most important person in the game? Probably Arnold Palmer because he set the stage. He laid the foundation for what we have today. Now, Tiger may surpass Arnold at some point if as he starts to play less or not as well, if Tiger becomes the ambassador that everybody in the game hopes he becomes. He could someday surpass what Arnold did, but in my book, the most important player in the history of the game was and still is Arnold Palmer. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I don't know if funny is the right word. Is I don't mean to make this a, a, a tough transition, but just with what happened recently with Kobe Bryant uh, and his tragic passing, I was listening to some podcasts on the drive down and how everyone wanted to compare Kobe to Michael and then start comparing like LeBron to Kobe and I forget who made the point on the podcast I was listening to, but it was basically like, no, 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 these things all work linearly. Like, they work together. I mean, you can't compare Kobe and Michael because, like, what Michael did helped drive Kobe and, like, the certain things he learned from Michael and the things that, like, LeBron, it's not, you can't cover enough, like, how much LeBron has learned from Kobe has made LeBron a better player. So it, it's, it's, it's not a, it, I love to do debates on players, but, like, what you're, to bring it back together to that point, What's happening with Tiger and how he's been able to have this impact on the game couldn't have been possible without what Arnie did, is I think what you're saying. I, I couldn't agree more. The one thing that, that you, can't, you can't do, you can't compare errors. People say, who's better, Jack yep. or Tiger? It's not possible. They play different equipment. They have different technology. And that's all you have to know right there. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's like being with a rotary phone on the wall in your kitchen. There's yep. only one phone and a black and white TV in your living room. To today, yeah. we've got cell phones in our pockets, and we've got we can watch a we can watch a Super Bowl while we're out playing golf. It's a totally different era. But when you think about one player begetting another player, begetting another player, without Jack Nicklaus, 
there would be no Tiger Woods. Yeah. Without Michael Jordan, there'd be no Kobe Bryant. And I loved Kobe Bryant, not just because of the player that he was, but the person that he was. And to me, I go way beyond performance. When you look at the Hall of Fame, people are in the Hall of Fame for their accomplishments. But what about the Hall of Notoriety, the, the, the things people do away from their game? When you look at what Ma Magic Johnson's done, you look at what Michael's done, you look at what Arnold and Jack and Tiger's doing now with his foundation, it's all well and good. We, we, we stand up and we give trophies and we give speeches and stuff, but at the end of the day, what are you thinking about? I remember when I went to Arnold's service, when Arnold passed away a few years ago, I went to his service in the Trobe, and there were 20 players there, and everybody that got up to eulogize Arnold, Annika Sorenstam, Jack Nicholas, his grandson, Sam Saunders, uh, the commissioner of the tour, everybody, not one of them mentioned Arnold's accomplishments. Masters, US Open, British Opens, Hall of Fame, what they talked about, was what he'd done for his community, for the game, for the world, for charity. And that really struck me because Arnold Palmer, if you can't highlight what he's done with his clubs, then, then you really think, oh, well, that's really nothing we should talk about. You need to talk about the man that he was. And that's what I love thinking about Kobe and what, what he meant to so many, so many people in the game. And Boy, I, it's just such a sad moment to yeah. think about he and his family and, and what he could have been. Yeah, no, I think it, <laughs> this is not that relevant to our conversation, but I, I always, I'm gonna use quotes, sports hated Kobe. I didn't root for him, I rooted against him in sports. And it, I became very blind to him as a person because I was driven by not liking him as a basketball player. I'm more of a LeBron guy. Separate conversation. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a blazer. I'm a Portland Trail okay. Blazer Jersey guy. Yeah. And I'm not a big Laker jersey guy, yeah. but I loved Shaq, and I loved Kobe. And and I was so happy that Kobe only played for one team. I love that. Yeah. It's kind of a throwback yeah, to the old ways. for but, sure. But I really, look, you can not like a team and pull against them, but you, you can appreciate a player playing yeah. for that team. Yeah, and that's what I'm getting at. It's like I was blind. I was really starting to come around on him as a person, hearing like interviews he'd done since he was done playing, how he talked about his daughters, and I... I was like, yeah, you know what, he probably always was this person, but now I always had the sports part that I didn't like and I didn't let myself like him. I don't know how that relates to this conversation, but it all connects. It all does connect. I, you are also known as being a bit of a prankster. I want to know, like, what's the best prank, your most memorable prank that you ever pulled on someone? Well, I don't know if I'm so much of being a prankster, but I, I love crazy times and crazy moments when Payne Stewart was alive, Payne Stewart and I had a band with Mark Lye, former tour player, called Jake Trout and the Flounders. And I played guitar and sang, Mark played guitar and Payne played harmonica. We all three can't sing, but we all did sing. It didn't matter, we're not, we're not You were just playing some tracks for me. No. You can sing pretty well. One of the things that we would love to do, when we would go to a certain town, whether it's Hilton Head or Greensboro, Columbus, yeah. We would always love to go to a bar after a Thursday or Friday round, or maybe after we missed the cut, and we would have dinner, have a couple of pops, and the local band would let us get up on stage and play. And that, to me, is how I remember Payne Stewart, mm -hmm. as somebody up on stage, totally out of our element. We might have just walked off the golf course, 
tried to save a par, make a birdie, lead a tournament. And here we are on stage with a guitar and a microphone and a harmonica playing and singing with a local band. That was really something that we loved to do. So I'm probably known more for a lot of the extra stuff that I did rather than winning tournaments on the PGA Tour. Where where would you go in Dublin? Was it the Bogey Inn? Is that yes? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Oh, I'm glad you just said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I used I grew up two minutes driving from the Bogey Inn, and you could hear from our my parents' house the music that comes from there. And I think they make like thirty three percent of their income during that one week during the year. It's just well, like the, the overflow. All the things you heard a little off key. That was probably <laughs> pain and I. We did hear. I, I did want to talk about you know pain is kind of been a topic of conversation with the twenty year anniversary of his death and obviously what recently happened with Kobe. But what was, you, you were close with Payne, you mentioned that. What was your first memory of him? Like what was the first first thing that comes to mind? The first time I met Payne, I didn't like him. I don't I, think many people did like that him. That was one of the things too was, yeah. I was gonna ask is, is Payne, and I mean this affectionately, was Payne an appropriate name for him? Because he was a pain in the ass to a lot of people. Boy, you, you, you took the words out of my mouth. We used to joke about that. When Payne came out on tour, he, he was, he was, he had a chip on his shoulder. He wanted to prove that he could play. And it was clear he could play. But he just wasn't uh, enjoyable enough to be around that, I, I don't know what it was. He was a tough guy to like. I admired his game, but he was a hard guy to, to, to enjoy his company. But later on, as he became a, more of a seasoned tour player, he and I bonded through music. He wanted to beat everybody, every great competitor. When you look at Tiger, and you look at Jack, and you look at Lanny, and you look at Raymond Floyd, there's not a lot of affection on the course because they want to kick you in the teeth. Payne was that way. But I think when Payne softened a little bit, when he got married and had kids, and he became a Christian, and he started becoming more accepting of people, and then the true Payne Stewart came out. And he and I did so many things. Well, put it this way. he had tons of friends. You talk to 50 guys, they'll all tell you that Payne was their best friend because that, that's how warm and affectionate he became to his friends. He cared about their families, he cared about your game. So Payne became one of, the, one of the great people in the game, one of the great people in sport. All right, you made it. You made it through the struggle part of the audio, qual audio quality. We are uh, clean, smooth sailing for the rest of the way. Before we get to the back half of the interview, I want to remind you guys, Taurus Sauce Season 5, The Carolinas, is airing now live on our YouTube channel. If you already listened to this, that means the Kiowa episode play played last night. Uh, Neil and I have a very adventurous match from the back tees at the very difficult ocean course at Kiowa. While uh, Tron, DJ, and Randy moved up a set, had a nice leisurely stroll along the beach there. Um, we documented our day there, and we're going to continue to document uh, this season, which is brought to you by Original Penguin. They've uh, it's the, the clothing company we've partnered with for this season. They've got great styles for everyone. If you want to stand out on the course, like Neil and TC like to, they've got wild prints. But if you're looking for something more conservative, more traditional, maybe even blue, you know that's something I'm going to be wearing. They've got that as well. We love the fit of the clothes, especially the polos and the pants. Um, and Original Penguin, it stands for originality and celebrating good times both on and off the course. We demonstrated that wearing the product both on and off the course for the entire season. And I'm still wearing this stuff. Actually, I've got two, two, two different sets of uh, Original Penguin clothes on right now. So 
Check them out at OriginalPenguin.com. Always remember to be an original and uh, be sure to swing on by the YouTube channel and check out our series there as well. Now for the last half of our interview with Peter Jacobson. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, mostly because you were, I want to know what your role was in this. There's a lot of conversations now with the world tour. What uh, what was your role in this? How did it come about? And I want to hear, because I think a lot of my, my generation knows Greg Norman tried to do something and that's and it didn't work out and it became the WGCs and our, our knowledge of it is probably not that good. So what can you tell us about that? I was playing in the Shark Shootout, Greg Norman's tournament in Los Angeles in the early 90s. I was playing with Arnold Palmer as my partner. And Greg called us all to a boardroom to Sherwood Country Club and he had a proposal for us. So I was one of 20 or 24 players and they're all the named players that you would know. Payne, Hale Irwin, Lanny Watkins, Bruce Liskey, Curtis Strange, Arnold, um, on and on. And Greg proposed a new tour. It was called a world tour. There would be 48 or 50 players. There would be 20 tournaments worldwide, big money, big opportunity. And we were all invited to be a member of the tour because we were in the top 50 on the world rankings. Arnold Palmer was completely insulted because he said to Greg and everybody in the room, he said, fellas, when I was playing in my heyday, I was one of the big three. It was Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, and Gary Player. And he said, how many times do you think we were approached about breaking off and starting our own tour, our hand-picked tour of 20, 30, 40 players? And we said, well, probably quite a few times. And he said, yeah, that's right. And you know why I didn't do it? Because it would have been detrimental to the game and it would have hurt the PGA Tour. And he, and he got up and walked out. He said, if you guys want to do this, good luck to you. I'm out. I'm done. Now, Arnold wasn't playing much golf back then in the early 90s. We played a lot together in some best ball tournaments, Shark Shootout, Fred Mar Challenge, CVS Charity Classic. But Greg knew that it was a destructive idea because the PGA Tour, when it was formed in 68, 69, there were just a few players. They broke away from the PGA of America to form the tour. And then it's grown into what it was then and what it continues to be today. Now, I'll say this. If it's, if it's about the game, making the game better, I'm all for it. But if it's only about money, which this seems to be what it is, then I want nothing to do with it. It's destructive. I'll, I'll echo what Arnold said. If it's about money, I want no part of it. Because think about it. If we'd done the world tour with Norman back in the 90s or the big three had broken off, you never would have heard of Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or any players, uh, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, because the tour would have been fragmented. And I'm not sure you would have been able to put all the pieces together once Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. I don't know who's behind this, but this echoes so much what Norman tried to do. Don't forget, we would have had to have rescinded our tour membership back then also. Now this new tour member, this new tour that comes out, they're gonna do 18 tournaments and they're gonna help the PGA Tour? That's a lie. There's gonna be only 18 tournaments that Tiger or Rory or Phil or Justin play. They're not gonna go play Tampa or Greensboro or the Bob Hope or the, the American Express. They're not, they're not gonna do that. And I would say again, if, it, if the tour was hurting for money and these players were hurting for money. I might understand it, but they're not. The tour is flourishing, they're flourishing. 
I just wonder maybe if there are some agents, some of these players' agents behind it, looking to get richer. I don't know, but I worry about the influences these players are uh, and the advice they're getting because that's why I wish Arnold were still alive. And I don't know what Jack says, and I don't know what Gary says. I'd like to hear from them, but I think it's a bad idea, and I think it's a destructive, destructive scheme. And that's where I, I struggle on coming to terms with it, too, is it can't be the first time anybody's thought of this. And, and, and so I guess I didn't really know the history behind the opportunities. It, may, it would make way more sense back in the day with the big three for how much those guys fetched and how much they were probably subsidizing the rest of the tour. Correct. I think, Absolutely. I, th- I think the best argument in favor of the players that are in support of this is that they're probably the free market of golf is not as free as other big sports. So NBA and things like that, are, people are paid closer to market value versus just straight performance. That's you know, a point. At the same time, like you said, they're not struggling for cash. The, the, the purses are going up. They continue to go up. They, I guess they're not increasing a ton, but the purses are big. People are getting a ton of money. People are getting good off-course money that it's hard to say that it's definitely not about anything more than money. You know, it's not about this a glorious new competition series. You know, it's... I, I, we already I, have that. I know. I, I think it is just... I, I know it's a real possibility, and they're, they're very far along with setting this up, but I think it go, is going to end up with the tour. I don't know what changes they're going to make, what concessions they're going to make. There is a negotiating tactic. I'm not saying it's a ploy, but it's going to end up with something happening at the PGA Tour level. I can't imagine this thing becomes a so, thing. So let me offer you this. If they really wanted to make some changes, some necessary changes, I, I don't know what they are. The only thing I can think is taking the PGA Tour and reducing fields. Let's be honest. We already have enough tournaments, the World Golf Championships, and some of the majors and some of these other events – the, uh, the the FedEx Cup playoffs, they've got smaller fields. When you start looking up Tigers Tournament down in the Bahamas, the Hero World Challenge, it's got 18 players. I don't know really what, what the players are looking for. So let me ask you this. Let's say you're one of the top 50 that joined this new tour, and you play and you play great. Is the Masters and the USGA, are they going to recognize that tour with world ranking points? Because don't forget, the official world rankings get you into a lot of the majors. What happens if they don't agree to it? So now the Masters comes and goes without a Rory McIlroy or a Justin Thomas. Justin and Rory aren't going to like that. And it's it to me, I, I think rather than destroy something, I think you should work on something that is really solid and really strong. Let me ask you this again. Let's say you're in the top 50 or the top 48, and you happen to hurt your elbow, and you can't play for six months, and you fall out, where do you go? Do you go go back to the PGA Tour? Do you go to the Corn Ferry Tour? And now you feel left behind. It's almost like a um, a, a competitive claw. I forget what it's called now. I'm drawing a blank. Like uh, if you are leaving a job, you can't compete in a certain market. It's kind of the power, that a non-compete agreement. There it is. It's simple enough. Uh, It's the power that the PGA Tour has. And it would be very different if the players were picketing outside, like we 
need water coolers on every hole. And the tours, no, we refuse to give it to you. Okay, well, we're going to go do it over here. But there's not anything out there that the tour players are like, hey, we need this. Where is it? Yeah, this isn't the King of King, uh, the Game of Thrones to where King Joffrey, yeah. who has all the money yeah. and the peasants outside the walls are starving. The PGA Tour exists to provide playing opportunities to the players. They do marketing for the players. The money flows through the tournaments and the communities we play to the players, and we have a very healthy deferred compensation plan that you earn money into your account. I don't get it. it I, I don't understand what these players are, are thinking about. And I would, I'll make a prediction right here. I don't think this is going to come to pass. I, I, I think this is another pipe dream because it's the wrong motivations. It's not about fixing or helping the game. It's about money. It's about greed. And that doesn't help anybody in the long term, only in the short term. And that's where I think the assumption that fans are going to love this is, is way off. No, we're the fans. Our, our base, when you start looking at our base fans, you, you could argue what the Golf Channel has done for the PGA Tour. Fifteen years ago when they signed the deal, they gave a home to the PGA Tour on the Golf Channel on Thursday and Friday. When you come home, if you hear Rory's 10 under through 12, and you run home and turn on the golf, you turn on the golf channel. You know the channel. So what what they what they've done to be able to do that is the, one of the most important things. When you start talking about our base fans, our foundation, they they know where to go for TV. Exactly. But when you go to the towns like like I mentioned, Tampa and Greensboro and Palm Springs and L.A. and San Francisco and San Diego, those are the fans that love the game. If all of a sudden you take the stars out of that, those tournaments, you run the risk of really pissing these fans off. And now you're going to have a revolt against these top players that leave to go play these tournaments. They said 10 of the 18 are going to be in the U.S. Well, where are they going to be? Are they going to gobble up tournaments that already exist? Or are they going to go to markets like Philly and St. Louis and in Seattle that don't have tournaments. It is a real slippery slope here, and it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of buy-in, a lot of money, and a lot of players turning their back on, an, on a tour that's been awfully good to them. Yeah. Well, it, the, the point you bring up about the history of this one happening with, with the big three and then again happening in the 90s and happening now, I'm curious as to what – and the, the point you made about Arnie is extremely interesting, and I want to know your – where did you stand on it before Arnie said that, and where did you stand on it after? We didn't know anything about it. Okay. We, I had no, no we had no concept. We went into the board meeting. It was a complete secret, and when Greg, when Greg presented it to us, we all sat around looking at each other like, what is this? And there was a handout. I wish I'd kept the handout. But when Arnold saw it, and he made his speech, and he stood up and he walked out. You knew, you knew where you stood on that. Yeah, the next guy to speak was Lanny Watkins. He said, well, fellas, he said, if it ain't good enough for Arnold, it ain't good enough for any of us. So Lanny got up and walked out, as we all did. So I don't think anybody really had a chance to chew on it like they are now. It was presented, boom, here we go. But I, I have faith in these players today, Tiger, Phil, Rory. I think they're all really good guys and clear thinkers. I trust them to do the right thing. And that's where I kind of land on that, too, is it is going to come down to Tiger Woods. If, if they don't have Tiger, they don't have it. I don't think it, this thing exists. And I can't picture Tiger captaining the 2019 President's Cup team for the PGA Tour and then saying, I'm done with the PGA Tour. I'm, I'm gone. I 
thanks for everything, but I'm I'm giving up on this and going to go. I just don't see that happening. As I said earlier in the in the in the the, the show that. When Arnold Palmer stopped playing competitively, and he stopped playing, period, he and I would partner in some of these best ball events. You know who had the biggest gallery? Arnold Palmer. Why? Because he was Arnold Palmer. I think Tiger has the opportunity to be just that. He's still playing well, which is it's amazing to me after all he's gone through with his, with his body. And he could play very well all the way until he's 50, but after 50... What will he do? I think Tiger is going to do the right thing because deep down inside, he knows what the tour has done for him. He knows what he does for the game of golf. And he, it could be a total upheaval in the game of golf if he decides to jump ship and this thing were to become a reality. I just don't think it will be. Yeah, I mean, Tiger's never been short of... Um, he's never been shy to pursue financial benefit in the game. But I, and I, I, at the risk of saying something that I don't know the full history of, I, I can't think of some, at a time where he has caused any kind of stink over the amount of money given out or any, you know, actual real issues with the tour. I mean, he has made, we've done like a, a very basic study of this, how much money he's made for other players is almost immeasurable. I've never heard him complain about that one time. Well, when you look at, in my world, I'm 60, almost 66, there's an eligibility requirement on the Champions Tour and it's money. You look at the money that my generation made and now players coming out of the Tiger Tour and the money that he yeah. helped make them, it, 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 it's incredible. And I agree with you. Tiger has never said, hey, look what I'm doing for you. I'm helping put money in your pocket. Not at all. The, the, the spotlight shines brightly on Tiger and rightly so, but he's always been magnanimous about it. He's always done the right thing. Yeah, you can argue he did some wrong things, yes. But we all do wrong things from time to time. But I'm a huge fan of his, and I think he's going to be the guy that's probably going to turn the tide and turn this thing away along with some of these other player, young, great players. Do you foresee any way that this something comes out of this idea but also involves the PGA Tour. Because like we've spoke on, I, I don't think guys are going to nuke their PGA Tour status. I just don't see that as a possibility. So do you see some kind of merge? Uh, I, and that's where I, I, my knowledge of the, how the WGCs came about is limited. Is that how directly correlated to what Norman proposed is you know, what eventually happened with the WGCs? That's exactly right. What Norman proposed basically pushed Fincham, the commissioner at the time, Tim Fincham, I don't know if push is the right word, but helped him to understand that there was maybe something a little different. I think the same thing could happen here. Every organization evolves and changes, sometimes for the better, sometimes to the detriment. But that's one of the things I played with Lee Iacocca in a pro-am, the former chairman of Chrysler. And I said, when you get to the fork of the road, what do you do? And he goes, well, you, t you go one way or the other. And if you realize you went the wrong way, you turn around, go back, and take the other fork. It's not scientific. You just have to do the right thing. But something, uh, this, this World Golf Tour, this World Golf League, if it helps the tour step back and maybe take a hard look at itself and make some changes, great. Yeah. But I, I think the tour is doing really well. We have the playoffs. We have the majors. We have the World Golf Championships. I don't think we've ever, or currently in the, the way it is now, any great player from around the world is denied access. Again, scores 
talk and BS walks. If you don't play well, you're out. You're back. You're back on an, on your another tour. What if we're to kind of surmise? What would the what are the weaknesses of the PGA Tour in this scenario? If, if you know we have a direct competitor coming up, what advantages do they have over the tour? What are the weaknesses here that? Um, and it, I don't I don't know how to say that exactly, but you know what I mean. It's kind of what what could this tour eliminate problem-wise that the tour has that this Premier Golf League would not? Well, I'm not a big fan of having to go through the Corn Ferry Tour to get to the tour. I really like the old ways where you went to a tour school, and if you qualified, you'd be on tour. Now, if you're a stud player coming out of college, you have to rely on sponsor exemptions. Now, Matthew Wolf did that. Colin Morikawa did that. Victor Hovland is doing that, and, and they're playing on well, – they've won on tour except Victor – but I think the feeder tour, which strengthens the Corn Ferry Tour, I think it frustrates a player because he's got to go through the process. The argument is it's going to make you a better player. It's going to help you to travel and learn how to, how to allocate your time properly and practice and save money and all that. And I agree. I, I agree with that. But It's not always – I agree, definitely agree with that last part – my issue with it is it's the golf courses, for the most part, aren't necessarily preparing you the best for PGA Tour golf. And the purses aren't there. I would love to see the purses. I think we could take a little money from the PGA Tour purses and bring it down to the Corn Ferry because I've talked to a lot of players that when they played the Corn Ferry Tour, they said we could barely pay our bills because there's not a lot of money, whereas there's a bunch of money. Now, again, to take the other side of the argument, the Corn Ferry Tour is not – it's not – major leagues yet the pga tour is the gold standard in the game it is i i think it's a very big difference it's basically the guys that graduate from corn ferry to pga are playing for 10x like you, you yeah. get up it's like 10x a 10th place finish is uh, on the pga tour is basically 10 times what corn ferry is it could be closer i, I obviously the tour is the driver of the money i think that that's a very extreme for the difference in talent that is an extreme, extreme hurdle. And, and the argument I would make is if you're trying to prepare a young player for the tour by having them go through the Corn Ferry Tour, you want that player to have pride in their tour. You want them to be able to put their best foot forward in the pro-ams. If they know that they're, they're going to play for more money, I think you're going to have more pride in that tournament, in that tour. I just, I just think that we could do yeah. a little bit better on that prize money. There's a couple things I want to make sure we get to before we, uh, before we wrap up with you. I was told by someone, I won't name, and if there's no re- I don't know if there's a reason why I, I couldn't name this person, but to ask you about when John Daly hit a drive over the crowd at the Fred Meyer. I know nothing about what this is, but I'm told to ask you about that. I did a tournament in Portland, Oregon called the Fred Meyer Challenge way back. Uh, it started in 88, and it went to 03. It was one of these Monday, Tuesday events. The Shark Shootout grew out of it. The CVS Charity Classic grew out of it. It was a best ball competition, 10 teams, 20 players. John Daly was there, and we were doing a clinic before the round. We always did the clinic on the 18th green to utilize the sky suites and sky boxes around 18. We would put up sod on the 18th green and hit back down opposite, back down the fairway. Daly got up one time. I was on the on the tee with Jack Lemon, the great actor Jack Lemon, and he got up on the tee, grabbed his driver, and said, "You know, I'm tired of tired of hitting drivers into the wind. I'm going to turn around and hit them downwind." He hit his first couple of balls without any warm up, 
took a driver and hit two balls and snapped them and blocked them. Turned around, now he's facing an amphitheater, a crowd that goes up at probably a, probably a 30 degree slope. And it looked to me like he had a chalk ball in his hand. And I said, yeah, I just hit it right up all those, over those people's heads. And I put it, he put the ball down and I thought it was gonna explode. You know, that old exploding yeah, yeah. ball trick. It was a real ball. And he tagged this driver. I wouldn't have done it with a wedge after an hour of warming up. He tagged this ball and cured it, knocked it over everybody's head. Everybody lost their lunch. I promised to pay for everybody's dry cleaning of their underwear that on the on the path of that tee shot. Were people entertained or were they upset well, about it? Well, <laughs> people were laughing that weren't in the line of sight yeah, of the yeah. golf ball, but a lot of people were upset about it. But um, that, <laughs> earned, that earned John a... A small suspension, I Did believe, it? at the time, yeah. Wow. So let's say you're hired for uh, a speaking function of some kind. Do you have, like, a go-to story? Like, your, your story of, like, all right, I know this is going to get my laughs. Like, I know, I know people are going to hit – it's going to hit people in the feels. Do you have a go-to? Well, probably, oh, gosh, a bunch of them. The one story that I think people – People tend to forget, and you probably don't even know this, when I tackled the naked streaker I've at the got that open, on here. That's, I wasn't going to leave without that, this one. I know the, this one. That's the story. What that, course was this one? This was at Royal St. George's okay. in the Open Championship, 85. I was in the second to the last group with Tom Kite. Had a chance to win, but we're now on the 72nd hole. Payne Stewart is in second place right behind the green. Sandy Lyles got a two-shot lead in the group behind us. I'm playing with Tom Kite, and all of a sudden, out of the crowd comes this naked guy. We heard later that it was a marshal who just stripped his clothes down and started streaking. <laughs> now, normally, when you see streakers, they're beautiful women or women, but this happened to be a guy. Well, he ran around the green a couple times. We're waiting to putt out, chip up and putt out. We both missed the green. I'm standing in there on the green with Kite and Fluff and Michael Carrick, Kite's caddy, and I said, what are we going to do about this? And they said, well, just let the cops get him. The cops are chasing him around. And I said, well, if he comes near me, I'll, I'll tackle him. And they both looked at me, all three, and they went, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, yep, so there's a challenge right there. He ran right by me, and I tackled him, put my head down, turned it to the side, <laughs> closed my mouth. I didn't want any afternoon surprise. Uh, and knocked him down. The Bobbies got him and took him off. And the funniest thing is, is I played in many opens. When you leave the next morning, all the papers of the world in Heathrow have pictures of the open champion <laughs> kissing the trophy, but not this, this one. Yeah. It was this naked marshal's bare ass on my shoulder as I'm turned to the head with a big, with a big disgusting look on my face as I tackle this guy. You gave a good celebration after that, too. <laughs> I you did. Were, yeah, oh, at, at the up. time, it was part of, remember Mark Gastineau with the Jets? Yeah. He'd always do these sack dances. <laughs> I jumped up and gave a, gave a quick sack dance. <laughs> All right, a couple more. What is, what is an extinct event, an event that's no longer there that you miss the most? Well, it would be the tournament I did in Portland called the Fred Meyer Challenge. Yeah. 20 players, actually 24 players, 12 teams of two, and we had everybody. We had Jack, we had Arnold, Mickelson, Els, Sergio. The only player that we we never had, we had Payne Stewart, Azinger, Faldo. Uh, we, the only player we never got was Tiger because it was a little bit before Tiger's time, but then Tiger became so big. I offered him a bunch of money to come, but but he never did. And it's the home of Nike, too, in Portland, Oregon. But that event was unique. It was one of the first of its kind, and I don't think we'll ever see an event like that again because the players demand so much money for appearance fees nowadays that 
Back then, the players would play for the purse. They would get a guarantee of, I think, 30000 bucks, two days, and it was a magical two days. You ask any player, Lanny played in it, Elkington played in it, you name it, you, uh, we had them all. And the players still remind, remind me about that and remember that tournament fondly. All right, we have a, a segment we're doing on the podcast this year where we're, we're BMW is a global partner of ours. They're a partner, of course, a global partner of the Ryder Cup. I can't let any Ryder Cuppers get by without asking Ryder Cup questions. But you played for Lanny Watkins at, at 95 for that Ryder Cup team. What was it like? Was he a, as intimidating of a captain as he was just a fellow tour player? No. No, no. okay. As a captain, he was, he was unbelievable. by him. Well, Lanny's intimidating, period, because, as, because he's a great champion, and he's tough, to, he's tough to play against. But I felt like he and his, uh, his entire contingent of, uh, of Ryder Cup captains and, and uh, everybody that was in, in charge made us all feel so warm and welcome. And Lanny was fantastic. You want to be on Lanny Watkins' team, or his side in a fight. He's going to fight to the death for you. And that's that's how I felt when I was on his team. So uh, I had two captains in my Ryder Cups. 85, it was Trevino, and 95, it was Lanny. Two different individuals, completely different individuals, but two incredibly great champions, guys you want to be on their team. Well, a question we love, love, love asking people. When was the last time you paid for a round of golf? The last time I paid for a round of golf was about eight years ago, Stream Song. Okay. Ben Crenshaw set me up to go play. And they made you pay. I walked in the pro shop and I said, hey, I've got some guests with me, some amateur buddies of mine I want to pay. And they said, ah, don't worry about it. It's taken care of. As I was leaving in the car with my three buddies, a guy from the pro shop came running out and he said, hey, you didn't pay for your golf. So I went in. I said, you, you, I thought you it's comped okay, us. Yeah. I went in, slapped down my credit card, and I paid for our golf. There you go. There you <laughs> go. Quick. Usually it, that question comes with a, a stunned silence of like, oh, my God, I can't even remember what the last time Well, was. if you're a member of a club yeah. like I am and you pay dues right. or you, you know, I buy you lunch and the eight beers you had earlier the, <laughs> in the day, then, yeah, I'm, I'm paying for golf. Yeah, that makes sense. How many times were you fined in your career? Never. Never? No fines? No Not fines. even once. Okay. That's one we're trying to start asking people because I feel like there's always yeah. a good story there. But. All right, we're going to let you go. It's, uh, thank you so much for letting us come down and crash, uh, crash your club here. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and uh, look forward to listeners here. No, I'm honored to be on the show. Thanks for having me. You bet. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Yeah, I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! <laughs>